you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. I've been thinking all week about this message because I I hear a lot of stories. I I have a lot of people that ask for prayer and counseling, and I know a lot of your lives. And, And I don't know what your life looks like right now. You could be prospering, or you could be in a place of great pain and heartache. Perhaps you're facing some challenges tonight or encountering obstacles that you don't know how you're going to overcome. Maybe you're overwhelmed by financial debt and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills this month. Or perhaps you're unemployed and you're carrying that heavy burden day in and day out. You might feel beaten down by life or feel powerless to make changes that are needed in your life. Perhaps the enemy has loaded you down with fear or plagued your life with anxiety. Maybe you're here tonight feeling like trouble is always on your tail and your life is full of despair. Some of you here may be ruled by addiction, an addiction that consumes your life and makes you feel defenseless against it. Perhaps you're burdened with troubles and trials or weighed down with a heavy load. I don't know what your life looks like, but I know that whatever is currently happening in your life or the circumstances surrounding them, I can promise you, you are not in that place by accident. I want to remind you that if you are here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you belong to God. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And the circumstances you're living in, whether or not someone else caused them, or you caused them yourself, or whether God just directed you into whatever situation you're in, they are not happening by accident. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and he's using every situation, every heartache, every heartbreak, every joy, every pain, every sadness to propel you in to that plan. And to bring you to a place of absolute abundance and prosperity. If only you will trust him. Do you trust him with your life? This is the central message of the book of Exodus. It's actually, I believe, the core message of the book of Exodus. It's a message of deliverance and redemption. It's actually the core message of the word of God. But I have news for you, just like God has a plan for your life and wants to prosper you, you have an enemy of your soul who wants to foil those plans and stop them in their tracks. He wants to keep you from prospering. Do you know that? And instead, he wants to enslave you so that you never possess and live the abundance of all that God has for you. We have an enemy whose number one priority is to oppress God's people and subdue our spirits. He wants to bog us down with burdens and trials and problems so that we neglect God and neglect his word. So that we are so occupied with the present trial we're going through or the heartache or the heartbreak that we do not realize how powerful we are in Christ. Do you know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within you? Do you understand that? But the enemy doesn't want you to realize that and he doesn't want you to live in that power. And so he assigns taskmasters to afflict our life. And what's worse is that he leads us to believe that those taskmasters have more power than we do. And that we have no choice but to submit to them. And here's the sad part. We actually believe that. We believe that there are things in our life that we are powerless against. And we choose to submit to them instead of submitting to the power of the Spirit at work within us. And tonight, we're going to talk about taskmasters. And as we do, we're going to be referencing the slave drivers or the taskmasters that we read about in Exodus, the ones that Pharaoh assigned to God's people to keep them in bondage. 
But as we go through this story, I want you to think of those Egyptian taskmasters that we're going to talk about as the things that our enemy assigns to our life to afflict us, to burden us, to weigh us down, and to make our life bitter, just like the Egyptian taskmasters made the Hebrews' life bitter. Things like addictions or sexual sin or fear or anxiety or worry. Things like memories or rejection or abandonment, division, discord, disunity. Things like sickness, drugs, alcohol, success. Good things like success can enslave you. Do you know that? Things that the enemy of our soul brings into our life to weigh us down and to keep us from all that God has for us. If you have your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 7 through 22. We're going to read that whole chapter, uh, but, but just bear with me as we go through it. I promise it's a story that's going to change your life. Chapter 1, verse 7, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. They multiplied and drew exceedingly mightily, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him, and if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives can come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mightily. And so it was with the, mid the midwives feared God, and he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. You'll notice that Exodus, as we covered last week or the week before, begins with the word and. And that word and indicates a connection to what came before. And, and as you know, it's namely the book of Genesis. That's what, what came before Exodus. We, we went over that in review uh, the week before last. And we talked about how the first five books of the Bible are considered a whole. And they were never meant to be standalone books but rather a continuation of the narrative that began in Genesis and continues through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We talked about how these first five books of the Bible all make up what is known as the Pentateuch or what some people may have heard as the Torah. The, translation, the translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, call it the Septuagint, and it comes from two Greek words, which mean five and volume. In other words, it's a five-volume book. But the Jews know it as the Torah. Uh, Torah means law or instruction. It's the book of the law. I told you that uh, most commentators believe that most of the Pentateuch, those first five books, were written by Moses. And you will notice at different times throughout our study that God will tell Moses to write down what he said to him or to, to uh, make a memorial of what he saw and write it in a book. That is the book of Exodus. 
There are some places in the book of Exodus that describe Moses in the third person. And so for some of you, you may look at that and say, well, Moses can't possibly have been the author. But I just take God's word for things. And so in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus quotes the book of Exodus and he, he attributes what he's quoting to Moses. And so as a way of review, I just wanted to get you then to verse 7. And we are introduced in verse 6 to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he lists those, those, those 12 sons of Jacob in, in that verse. And, and there's nothing special about them. I promise you that. In fact, if you study the 12 sons of, of Jacob, you, you will realize that, that it's really kind of amazing that God chose them at all. Because it really gives me hope because they're severely dysfunctional. They're a messed up family. They're full of lying and deceiving and wrongdoing. And yet God worked powerfully in their lives. The only thing positive that, that those 12 men had going for them was their God. And the promises that he had made. Their God was faithful even when they were not. And their God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. And what an awesome God he is. And you're going to begin to see that as we travel now through the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus picks up in verse 7 uh, where we began tonight. And, and you will see that, that the Israelites are thriving there. Uh, Egypt was comfortable for them. The ground was fertile. The land was fertile. They were, they, were, they, they were comfortable there. They were growing there. And Egypt, as I told you week before last, anytime you read about Egypt in the Bible, you can substitute the world. It's a picture of the world. Can I tell you that the world can be a comfortable place, can't it? We can have lots of fun. We can live, uh, you know, just enjoying and soaking up every minute that the world has to offer. But, but I will tell you <laughs> that that is not the way to life. And so the, Egypt uh, was comfortable for the Israelites. They were prospering there. They were living in the favor of, of, of Joseph. But God knew that they needed a catalyst to propel them forward because there was a promise he had made to, to Abraham. They were going to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. And in order for them to want to do that, he needed to make them a little uncomfortable. And that's what we're going to read about tonight. So the narrative continues to move forward from Genesis. And in verse 7, we see that that. Uh, that God is making the people of Israel a nation. You see, he had promised that to Abraham. He said, I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to make them as many as, as, as the stars in the sky. And I'm going to make a nation out of them. And I'm going to take them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're going to possess that. Well, they were 12 people that we read about the beginning of Exodus. And now they're prospering and they're growing. And, 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 and we read in verse 7, it fills in a gap of nearly 400 years. And we see that the children of Israel were fruitful and they were increasing abundantly and they were multiplying and they were growing exceedingly mighty. Somebody say mighty. That word fruitful means to bear fruit, to increase abundantly, to abound. You see, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. He made Israel's children into a great nation, and he's increasing the offspring of Abraham and multiplying them. The 70 children listed in verse 5 have become a nation. And you see in verse 9 that the Egyptians are taking notice. Can I just promise you one thing? That when you begin to bear fruit in your life, when you begin to abound in the promises of God, when you begin to increase and prosper, I promise you the enemy of your soul is going to take notice. He's going to take notice. And Pharaoh took notice that God's people were increasing and they were prospering. And in verse 8, we see that, that he said to his people, and that does not mean to the Egyptians. It means to his advisors, to his inner circle. He said to his advisors that the children of Israel are growing more and mightier than we. That word more means abundant. It means more numerous than. It means greater than. It means strong and mighty. And it isn't just about the Israelites growing in number. 
It's about Pharaoh realizing that they were becoming a force to be reckoned with. Does anybody besides me want to be a force to be reckoned with? Do you want the enemy of your soul to be threatened by the very ground you walk on? Is there anybody besides me that wants the kind of life that when you wake up the enemy of your soul say, oh no, she is awake. The Israelites were prospering. They were growing, they were being fruitful and multiplying. And Pharaoh was threatened by it. Pharaoh in, in Exodus is a picture of the enemy of our soul. The actual wording there in the Hebrew is they are becoming stronger than we. Oh, that, that's hilarious to me. Don't miss this. You see, the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh. Do you understand that? They, they were enslaved. They, they, they were being used by Pharaoh, abused by Pharaoh. He was cruel to them. And yet, secretly, he's intimidated by them. Oh, I, I just, it bothers me that they didn't even realize that. Here they were, this incredible force. They were powerful. They, they were being fruitful. They, they, were, they were more mighty and stronger than the Egyptians. And they didn't even Realize that I wonder, dear ones, if you realize what is inside of you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within you. There is nothing that the enemy can bring at you that is bigger than you. They were being treated harshly, burdened down, enslaved and held in bondage, not realizing that the person who had them enslaved was secretly threatened by their power. So he said, let's keep them busy with burdens. Let's burden them down and keep them occupied with pain in hopes that the distraction will keep them from realizing the truth. Do you know that your enemy thinks the same thing about you? His objective is to keep you so occupied. You see, that word afflict that, that, that's used in this passage, it means to be occupied with. It means to be busied with. He said, let's afflict them with burdens. You see, they're growing powerful. They're growing strong. And we've got to find a way to keep them down. We've got to find a way to, so that they don't realize how powerful they are. I got it. Let's afflict them. Let's occupy their life with burdens. Let's weigh them down with troubles and care and heavy burdens so that they are occupied. That's what the word means. Look it up. They're occupied. They are so occupied with their burden that they don't even realize who they are. Oh, dear ones, that's a prophetic word to some of you tonight. You are so occupied with the burden and the trouble and the heartache and the pain that the enemy has put on your life that you don't even realize how powerful you are. You don't understand that the whole reason he has come at you so hard is because he knows how powerful you are and he wants to keep you down. He wants to paralyze you with pain so that you don't realize how mighty you are. That's a threat to his kingdom. He is terrified of the Christ in you. He says, let's afflict them with burdens. Let's occupy their mind. But the word says that it didn't even work. They, they actually grew stronger. And, and so he had to come up with another plan. And in verse 10, it says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us. That word deal shrewdly means let's outsmart them. Do you know that you have an enemy who wants to oppose you and keep you from the destiny and the purpose that God has in your life? He's got a place flowing with milk and honey. He's got a place of abundance, abundant joy, abundant peace, uh, abundant contentment. Do you understand that that's God's plan for your life? Oh, but the enemy has a plan as well. And his plan is to keep you from walking in that abundance, in that joy, in that peace. And so what does he do? He does not want you to realize how powerful the God is in you. And so he afflicts you with burdens and he develops schemes. He says, we have to deal shrewdly. We have to devise some schemes that keep them from realizing how mighty they are. Do you know that he is a schemer. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, do not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. That word ignorant means not to know, to lack information. 
because he will get an advantage over you if you, if you are. That's what the scripture says. Do you know that he's looking for a way to get an advantage over you? He doesn't want you to prosper. He doesn't want you to have joy. He doesn't want you to walk in confidence and faith in God. And so he's devising a scheme that will keep you from realizing how powerful you are. And your job, the scripture says, is not to be ignorant of those schemes. And my job as a preacher of the word of God is to inform you. So you're not ignorant. You're not in an uninformed about his schemes. Do you know that you have a scheme in your life? Oh, Cheryl's scheme doesn't look like mine. Lisa has a different scheme than I have. Lisa's scheme might not work for me. The scheme that the enemy uses to bring her down and to suck her in might look different than mine. Because you see, he studied your life. He knows exactly where your weaknesses are and he does not waste his ammunition. Did you understand that? That he is calculated, that he is cunning and that he knows exactly what can bring you down. He has a scheme. For some of you, scheme is insecurity. Just put somebody who's thinner or prettier or more successful in front of you and you're defeated. For others, a scheme might be fear. What, what's some of your schemes? Does anybody know the scheme that the enemy uses in your life? Anybody have enough courage to say, this is my scheme? Fear with your children. It's a scheme. I can get you. You're strong and mighty, but I, can, I start working in one of your children's life and they start acting out. Then you get, you get full of dis despair and depression and question God's goodness in your life. Anybody else have a scheme that they know the enemy uses? John, distraction. If he can distract you, that's what they were doing in Exodus. Let's distract them. Let's keep them busy or occupied with something and then they won't realize how mighty they are. Yes, darling. Depression, that is a wonderful scheme. You're exactly right. And I'm so glad that you realize that even at your age. And Lord, we thank you that that scheme is foiled in Jesus' name. Depression, if he can say, oh, look at your poor life. You have so much to be sad about. God doesn't ever bless you. Your life is hopeless. You just go to bed and put your head under the covers. And depression, it's a scheme. Unforgiveness is a major scheme. You see, unforgiveness, uh, what, what he says is you have a right not to forgive. Hold that against them. Punish them with that unforgiveness. But what we don't realize is that the word to forgive means to cut loose. As long as I'm full of unforgiveness, I am tied to that person I'm holding unforgiveness to. And they still have power over me. But to forgive means to cut loose. I'm cut loose from them and that scheme that the enemy has, has purposed in my life. Yes, Cheryl. Sickness, illness, I think that that is a good scheme because what he can do is say, God doesn't love you. If he loved you, he wouldn't let you like this. And he'd, he'd bring healing in your life. And it's a scheme. Yes, very good. So what is a scheme in your life? May not be a scheme for me, but we have got to get to a point where we start to realize, you know what? This is an area that, that, that really becomes a weakness in my life and I can't be unaware the enemy can use Dave for a scheme in my life, and I've gotten smart about it. I'm just going to tell you. And I've gotten to a point where I will be like, you're just going to have to find another way because that one is not working anymore. I am not ignorant of your schemes. Pharaoh was terrified the Israelites would realize the power they had and use it to free themselves and rise up against him. And our enemy fears the same thing. And so he developed schemes to outwit us. Schemes to take advantage over us. And, and, and Pharaoh was doing that exact same thing. In verse 11, the Bible says, therefore they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. You see, he had to find a way to keep God's people small and drain them of their power. And he did that by putting burdens on them and afflicting them in an attempt to keep them small and frustrate their destiny. And as a result, he could curtail the, th the threat. And scripture said that he, he did that by setting taskmasters, cruel taskmasters over them. What is a taskmaster? If you look that word up in the Hebrew, there are two different words used. One means a burden that causes somebody to faint. And the other word is a head, a ruler, a, a, a master, 
So in other words, a taskmaster is a burden that rules our life or a ruler who burdens our life, hoping to cause us to faint. And Pharaoh assigned these taskmasters for, for one reason, to afflict them with burdens and make their life miserable. And I told you that that word afflict is very interesting. It means to oppress, it means to humble, it means to afflict, it means to be depressed or downcast, but it also means to crush. And it carries the idea of forcing someone into submission. In some passages, it takes on the word rape. Uh, When it talks about Delilah binding Satan or Samson to subdue him, it's that same word. And it's a picture of what our enemy does to us. He rapes us emotionally or he binds us to an addiction or, 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 or something that holds us tight and it subdues us. He puts heavy burdens on us in hopes of binding us and draining us of power. But my favorite definition of afflict there is what I told you to be occupied with, to be, bur- to be busied with. And you say, with what? Be occupied and busy with what? With the burden. You see, isn't that what happens? He brings trouble in our life. We have a child who's a prodigal. We're we're dealing with a relationship problem. We're dealing with unemployment issues or or an issue with our job. We're dealing with with the thought process. And, And what he does is he puts that on us. And then we become so occupied with dealing with that burden. And and we become we can become so busied and focused on that that we lose sight how mighty and powerful we are. And just like Pharaoh assigned those taskmasters to wear them down, that's what happens with us when we're, when we're burdened and heavy laden. We get worn down and exhausted so that we don't have the energy to fight. But in verse 12, we find out that his plan backfired. And the word says that the more he afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And that word multiply means to make great, to enlarge. Oh, I pray all the time. One of the scriptures I pray for my own life is, Lord, pull out the 10 pegs in my life and enlarge my territory. Anybody besides me want enlarged. Uh, I just want it. It means to increase. It, It means to begin to walk in abundance. But my very favorite is to be in authority. Oh, There is nothing I want more than to walk in authority. Do you know that you have authority? That that God has given you uh, power and authority in Jesus Christ. Do do you understand that? People always say to me, Rhea, why do you go around people who are are, or have demonic influence? or, Or why would you ever go into a dark place? Because I have authority. Because I walk in the light and I carry the very presence of God in my life. And when I walk into a dark place, I expect light to overcome darkness. It does not work the other way around. And you see, we begin to grow in might. We begin to to expand and to enlarge and to increase spiritually when we begin to understand authority. The Bible says, all authority I've been given to you to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all, not some, all the power of the enemy and nothing, absolutely nothing can harm you. Do you know that? Do you know who you are? You see the Pharaoh in your life, the enemy of your soul does not want you to realize who you are. That was the whole threat in Exodus chapter 1. He did not want the Israelites to realize how powerful they were. He didn't want them to realize that secretly he knew they were stronger than he was. And he lived terrified that they would understand that and they would begin to challenge the slavery. And they would overcome his kingdom. Oh, dear ones, can I tell you how powerful you are. Do you know what's living inside of you? We give way too much power to the burdens and the trials and the tribulations of this world. We need to do what Paul did with the snake that attached itself to him and just shake that thing off of us. So they began to grow exceedingly mightily, exceedingly powerful. And can I just say that when you begin to abound and increase in power, your enemy will notice and count on him being threatened by it. 
And so when his plan A didn't work, he needed to, come, he needed to up the ante. And in verse 13, we see that the, the Egyptians then made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They upped the ante. That word rigor means oppression. It has the significance of, of crushing. They were harsh. They were cruel with them. They were oppressing them and crushing them. And it comes from the unused root word meaning to break apart or to fracture. Do you know that his goal is to break you? Do you know that? Well, I used to ride horses. We had a, a stallion that was just wild. And, and my dad would go out in the backyard every night after work, and he would break that stallion. That stallion had a mind of its own. It was powerful. It was an incredibly powerful animal. But my dad broke that animal. And, and what happened when, what we knew when that, that happened, because it began to be in submission to my dad. We couldn't ride that stallion prior to my dad breaking it. But once it was broken, oh, it, it was like nothing. We could, it was just a piece of cake to ride that stallion. And I wanted to say, excuse me, Mr. Stallion. His name was Samson, by the way. I wanted to say, Samson, if you only knew that you are so much stronger than my daddy, you would never have given in. And you see, that's what the enemy wants. He puts burdens on us and he oppresses us and he crushes us because what he wants is for you to just be in submission. My life is so bad and I have no power over these circumstances and look how bad my family is and there's just no hope. Tonight, I text a pastor and I, I, I said to this pastor, you're on my heart and just want you to know you're loved and, and the pastor emailed me back or texted me back and said, Rhea, you have no idea what your text meant to me. She said, my life is so hopeless right now. I've given up hope on everybody. I don't think anybody is good. I don't think anybody cares about me. And I said, you are believing a lie. You have submitted to the one who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Get up. A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up every single time. I'm telling you, you have an enemy. Do not be unaware of his schemes. Do not be unaware of his schemes. He wants to break us apart. He, he wants us to just live in submission and not cause any trouble for his kingdom. Oh, can I tell you, I'm a troublemaker for that kingdom. Notice in verse 11, it says they built for Pharaoh, Python, and Ramses. Oh, I just want to park there for a second. And Lord, I need you to help me explain this. Because you see, the scripture says that they were treasure cities. They were supply cities. Do you see that? This is a really important point because commentators say that rather than supply cities, they, they, were, they were a fortified city. They were a strong defense against enemy attack. So I was tickled by this because you see what Pharaoh did is he took the Israelites and he made them slaves and they, he made them do his dirty work and build fortified cities so that his kingdom would be protected from enemy attack. Are you with me? Did you stay with me there? Because this is too important. I don't want you to miss this. Because you see, this is what he does. And Lord, help me to explain this. Do you have the picture that he's enslaved the Israelites? This is not, this is Egypt. It's not the promised land. And he's using the Israelites in captivity to build a fortified city that keeps them safe from attack. That was another one of his plans after the first couple failed. Some of you are with me already. Lord, help me. My husband Dave and I work with men who have sex addictions. And we work with their wives. I will tell you that there is nothing more clear to me than sex addiction to see how the enemy uses bondage and captivity, uses oppression to get a man into captivity, to get him into bondage, to, to make him submit to that bondage and think he's powerless against it. And what he does then is he builds a defense, a fortified city for the enemy. Because what happens is that man takes his wife right with him. The enemy doesn't even have to work in her life. He just needs to work and enslave that man. 
And then he gets a fortification that that really protects his city because what happens is that woman begins to question God. That woman begins to question who she is in Christ. That woman begins to question God's faithfulness and whether or not God even loves her. And you see, the enemy never had to touch her. All he had to do was get a tool. He had to get a slave, a man who's captive to sexual sin, and he's taken down a woman too. Oh, see, if you got that, you would think it was better. I would hear you talking more because that is powerful. I just want to ask you, who is the enemy using you to get to, to fortify his stand in that person's life? But he doesn't even have to to touch that person. He can get to them through you. I'm struck with these women that we work with. They're they're strong Christian women. They know better. And the stuff that the pit of despair that they can go to because their husband, they're they're in bondage, they're in captivity, and they don't realize, they forget who they are. And they, they realize they don't go after the enemy's kingdom. They go after the man instead. And the enemy wins. Because his kingdom gets a wall of protection. And he didn't even have to lift a finger. It's interesting on a side note that the word for supply cities here in Hebrew, and I won't pronounce it correctly, but it's mishkanoth. And when you find that word, there's a word that's very similar, and it's called mishkan. And one word means supply cities that the Israelites were instructed to build for Pharaoh in slavery. And the other we're going to study about at the end of Exodus, it's a tabernacle the one they were instructed to build for God. And it strikes me because they both sound alike. And the story of Exodus begins with God's people building defense cities for Pharaoh and ends with them building a tabernacle for God. Oh, it's just good stuff. The the first project was done for a slave master who was cruel and harsh to keep people out of his kingdom. And the second one was built by a loving God to invite people into his presence going to be powerful. In verse 14, I want you to see they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortal, in brick, and in all manners of service. That word bitter, it means to be bitter. It means to embitter oneself. But here's what I don't want you to miss. It also means to make strong, to strengthen, to toughen. I was like, Lord, what? I don't understand how they could both, this word could mean the same thing. And then I realized, you see, Pharaoh had intended to make their lives bitter and probably as a result, embitter them towards God. But little did he realize that what he had sent to make them bitter was actually toughening them up and make them stronger. Oh, dear ones, can I tell you the burden that he's inflicting on your life, the trouble that he has brought to your doorstep? It can make you bitter or it can make you better. I can promise you, he sent that trouble, he sent that trial, he sent that burden to embitter you. He wants you to question God. He wants you to question whether or not you are even loved by God. And he did that on purpose to embitter you. But we have got to make the choice that that's not going to embitter us. It's actually going to toughen us up. It's going to strengthen us. You see, that was Naomi. Naomi came back, if you remember, in Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 20. And she said to her her friend, she she had had a hard life. Her sons passed away. Her husband passed away. She was living in famine. and, And her life was hard. And she came back and she saw her friends. And, and they said, hey, there's Naomi. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She said, for the Almighty, the word is El Shaddai there. It means the all-sufficient one. It always tickles me that she gives mouth service to that, that he's (laughs) all-sufficient. The all-sufficient one has made me bitter, is what she says. Really? (laughs) Because if he was all-sufficient, dear one, you would not be bitter because of your circumstances. But she said, El Shaddai has made me bitter. It's the same word there. It's interesting to me. God meant those burdens to strengthen her, and yet they embittered her. Isn't it interesting? If we can just change our perspective, we can change our life. I read a a, a quote one day that said, The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. 
I, I, I read a story about, I, some of you are familiar with this story, and I think it was in 1981, uh, December of 1981, that there was a privately owned, just a small plane that crashed uh, right near Mount McKinley in Alaska. And uh, there were four men that were in that plane, and only two survived. And when it crashed, they were, it was in the middle of a blizzard, and, and they were only, uh, it was during the time where they only had four hours of daylight a day. And they, they knew that rescue teams had been sent, but the blizzard was so bad, and, and there wasn't much daylight. And, and, and so their friends, they, they, they just saw their bodies just strewn over the, 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 the ground, and they weren't prepared to be in this kind of weather. And, and so it was very cold. And five days later, they were rescued. And one of the men lost both feet, and the other one lost a, a couple toes and, and a few fingers. And it's interesting to me, they, they, they felt so relieved that they, they had been spared. And yet, seven, something like 17 years later, Dateline, NBC, did a follow-up story on them. And it's interesting what they found out. You see, both lived through the exact same crash, the exact same trauma, and yet their reactions were completely different. The one who lost the, the, the fingers and a few toes was very bitter and angry 17 years later. Dateline actually reported that he sued the National Guard, the people that rescued him. The one who lost both feet, on the other hand, and ended up having to get um, prosthesis in his legs, because I guess they took a portion of his legs as well, he was happy and content, and he had gotten on with his life. In fact, the artificial legs, he had, uh, had, uh, uh, he had even tried to climb Mount McKinley with those artificial legs. He decided to go back and conquer the thing that tried to take his life. And it was so clear in that follow-up article that perspective and the attitude with which we approach a situation can determine the effect it has on us. It can make you bitter or it can make you better. The same sun that melts wax can harden clay. It's all about changing our perspective. And I'm just going to tell you in this passage, the enemy's uh, scheme there was to embitter them, to put on a, a heavy load, to weigh them down, to bring something and afflict them so that they would be bitter instead of better, that they would question God and his goodness. He didn't want them to realize how powerful they were. He didn't want them to be a threat to him. He wanted to weaken God's people, and instead it strengthened them. So he had to develop another plan, and that's where he goes to the midwives, and he says, you know, if you see a, a, a Hebrew boy being born, make sure you kill him, and that didn't work. The midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they would not take the life of a child, and they said, oh, it was just because the Hebrew wives were, actually, the word there is like a wild animal. It means they reproduce like rabbits, like wild rabbits. So that didn't work, so then he had to develop another plan. So he went to his advisors and he said, okay, every male child I want you to throw into the Nile and kill. And I was asking the Lord, uh, just, you know, Lord, what does that mean to throw into the Nile? Why would, why would you point that out there? And what, what I realized, I began to look at a map this week. I was trying to find some maps to put up the screen to, to, to show you guys just the, the path that the the Israelites took out of Egypt. And so I was looking at maps and I was struck by Egypt. It really is in the middle of a desert. But smack dab in the middle of, of Egypt, in the middle, Davy, of Egypt is the Nile and it runs straight through Egypt. And, and, and Egypt was actually very fertile because of the Nile. And, and so that, that water <laughs> was really their source of life. It was their main source of life. And Pharaoh was going to use it as an instrument of death. And, and remember, I told you Egypt stands for the world. And the Nile is the source of life. And so Pharaoh's plan was submerge them in the Nile and it'll bring death. That's our enemy's plan as well. Egypt is the world. And that the things that the world says brings life, drugs, alcohol, Partying, 
sex, success, money, food, submerge it in that source of life that the world says is a source of life. And it will bring death. So you say, Rhea, how does Exodus 1 apply to us? Well, my mom used to say to me, Rhea, if the enemy is not on your tail, you're doing something wrong. I, frankly, I worry about people who have a peachy keen, honky-dory life. Leslie and I were away. Uh, we were in San Antonio at a conference this week, and somebody said to me, Rhea, you have more warfare in your life than anybody I know. And that's really true. And I love it. Because if you're not a threat to his kingdom, he is not going to be concerned with you at all. That's right. And I don't know if you want to, but I want to be a threat to his kingdom. I don't want him to use me to build fortifications for his kingdom. So let me ask you a question. What is your taskmaster? What is the thing that the enemy of your soul uses to afflict you and keep you from realizing how powerful you are in Christ? What is the thing that he uses to enslave you and make you do his work for him? What is the thing that weighs you down and keeps you from prospering in Christ? Remember, the word taskmaster in the, Greek, in the Hebrew means to burden and rule. What is the burden the enemy has placed on you to occupy you and keep you from being a threat to his kingdom? Work? Trouble? Trials? Concerns? Worries? Fears? Anxiety? In Titus 2, I was reading there today, and, and Paul talks about being slaves to much wine. And at first I thought, oh, I was looking up words that talk about the things that the enemy uses to enslave us. And, and at first I read that and I thought, wine, you know, if I throw wine out there, there'd be people who say, I don't ever touch alcohol. And then I realized that when he says, don't be slaves to much wine, he's not talking about an alcoholic drink. He's talking about excess. He's talking about something we indulge in. He's talking about anything, even good things, that can, in excess can enslave us. He's talking about a mindset of indulgence, indulging in the things the world has to offer, indulging in the things that the world says satisfies, but only enslaves. He's talking about the tasty things of life. You see, sin seems tasty for a season, but in the end, it leads to death. Paul is cautioning against enslavement that comes as a result of trying to numb pain and the things we use to try to escape pain, using something, not just wine, to escape and alleviate pain and find joy and fulfillment. It's using something besides God to deal with what he alone can overcome. You say, well, Rhea, that you're a bit over the edge because I don't drink or I drink just to have fun or... I only take drugs recreationally or I, I just work hard to support my family or I just go shopping and spend money I don't have because I like clothing or maybe you think you're not enslaved. or Maybe you say that none of those things are an issue for you, but what is your cruel taskmaster? What is the thing that enslaves you? Because there are a host of things that we can use in excess and become enslaved or addicted to. Maybe the opinions of others. Maybe the approval of others. Maybe food. And if it's not food, maybe it's the scale. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's just a longing to be accepted and included, and so you'll do anything. Maybe it's a longing to be noticed, and the enemy can enslave you with that. Maybe it's as simple as social media or video games. But Paul talks in Titus 3 about serving or being a slave to, to various lusts and passions. And, and he references things like malice and envy and hate. Do you know that those things can enslave you as well? And then he says, you know what? You've been set free from that. You don't have to be a slave to those things because you've been set free by the goodness and the kindness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same power. That raised Christ from the dead. 
does not want you to be a slave because you see what? We have a new master. Pharaoh is not our master. I love how Paul begins his letters. He says, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James opens up his, his book by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word means slave. <laughs> He's saying, you know what? The enemy cannot enslave you because you have a new master and his name is Jesus. But don't kid yourself. He'll still try. He'll still try. He knows that you're powerful and you're mighty. And you will become a slave to the one you obey. But where are you in this story? I hope that I explained it in a way that you can receive it tonight, that you understand it. I struggled all day saying to the Lord, I feel like I have such a nugget of truth, Lord, and, and help me, enable me, empower me to convey that truth to the people that they can get it and it can change their life. And so let me just flesh it out for you one more time. Just like Pharaoh enslaved God's people, and kept them in captivity and bondage 400 years to keep them from possessing the promised land and all that God had promised them. That's what our enemy does. He wants to enslave you. He can't not make you God's people because you are saved by grace through faith and not by works. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, baby, you are going to heaven because it's not about you and what you do or don't do. But here's what he can do. He can keep you in captivity. He can keep you in bondage, cruel bondage. He can make you feel powerless and forget who you are and the power of God that lives within you. And he can keep you so busied and so occupied with the things that he afflicts on you, the things that he brings and allows in your life, that, that you can lose sight of who you really are. Oh, you can still be going to heaven, but you can be powerless. And no threat to his kingdom at all. You see, that's what he's worried about. He knows who you are. And you are a threat to his kingdom. And his whole goal in your life is to keep you from realizing how powerful you are in Christ. Pharaoh was terrified that the Israelites would realize how strong they were and that they would say no to the captivity, that they would rise up against the enslavement and that they would walk away free and bring down his kingdom as a result. Your enemy is afraid of the very same thing. Can we agree tonight that we are not going to be unaware of his schemes anymore and that we are not going to give him an advantage over us?